Yes. Is hell. I see. Well, that's pretty loud. Hmm, maybe I should turn me down. Live from the age of surveillance, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Today, assistance for the poor. Indeed, the very way we view the poor has profoundly changed under neoliberalism, and especially due to the precarity it has caused. And yes, I did say profoundly and indeed for dramatic emphasis. Pretty broadcasterly, right? Under neoliberalism, the social contract is no longer cooperate and you get society's benefits. But you want society's benefits? Then work for it. Yes, the privatization of public service has led to poor people working for what little they're given, thus splitting the poor into the deserving working poor and the undeserving jobless poor. And incredibly, it all comes back to food and how food has replaced all other means of social services and why it's kind of a let them eat cake story but instead of cake we get some rice a loaf of day old bread canned peas and apple juice which sounds like a delicious meal our guest is anthropologist maggie dickinson author of feeding the crisis care and abandonment in america's food safety net maggie is assistant professor of interdisciplinary studies at the city university of new york's gutman community college our last question in every one of our interviews for each guest is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, they will hate to answer, or our audience will hate their response, or any combination thereof. Each week we have a question from hell for you, our listening audience, and what we think is the best answer to that, that week's question gets some sort of prize. This week's prize is... Well, it was going to be an autographed picture of the late, great Cincinnati Bengals and Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach and the quarterback of the now-defunct World Football League's Detroit Wheels, Sam Weish, who passed away last week. But I couldn't find it. I know it's in my house somewhere. I know I am going to find it. But I can't find it yet. Yes, Sam Weish autographed a picture to me, but I can't find it. It will be this week's prize if not, if I can't find it, this week's prize will be, uh, for the best answer to the question from hell, will be a This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring 25 classic interviews from the show over the past couple of decades. But we'll give that to you anyway, and I'll throw in the Sam Weish picture if I can find it. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? Uh, I hope you find that picture because the question from hell is... What the hell are you going to do with an autographed picture of recently deceased Cincinnati Bengals coach Sam Weish made out to Chuck? <laughs> the winner will receive, hopefully, 
an autographed picture of recently deceased Cincinnati <laughs> Bengals coach Sam Weish made out to Chuck. And I will bring the picture in tomorrow, and Alex, you can take a picture of it, and we'll post it online. It's pretty funny. Uh, do you, it's the weird... I, why I have this picture is the weirdest thing. Wait, was it made out to you or someone else named Chuck? It was made out to somebody named Chris, but, the per, but Sam Weish accidentally wrote down Chuck, and so the friend of mine who... A friend of mine wrote a song about Sam Weish, okay? It had nothing to do with Sam Weish. It was just to use those words that sound Sam Weish in the song. So uh, his sister met Sam Weish. She told Sam Weish, my brother would love having this picture autographed uh, for him, and could you make one out to the person he wrote the song with, and that's a guy named Chuck. It wasn't. It was a guy named Chris. But my friend came back with these two pictures. He was like, well, I can't give this to Chris. He'll just be pissed and rip it up. So here, you can have it. So that's why I have an autographed picture from Sam Weish holding an old style, one of the uh, Buccaneers helmets with the guy with the plume coming out of his hat and uh, the knife in his mouth, that old style of Tampa Bay Buccaneers helmet. He's wearing, he's holding that kind of helmet. So it's quite a thing. It's an exclusive only here. You can only get it here on This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. That makes this week's question from Hell, what the hell are you going to do with the picture, an autographed picture to Chuck of Sam Weish, the person with the best answer will win that and I'm going to throw in the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive as well. Alex will have some of our answers to this week's question from Hell following our guest. You know what else we can throw in as part of the Question from Hell prize this week? A copy of the National Rifle Association's magazine, America's First Freedom, which is a weird title for a magazine that is all about the Second Amendment. No, America's second freedom doesn't have the alliteration of first freedom, but at least it's accurate and not misleading. After all, gun ownership is not the first freedom delineated in the Constitution, to be even more accurate. It's not even the second, but the fourth, after freedom from Congress making laws to establish a religion or prohibiting the free exercise of religion, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And fourth freedom does have that alliteration, like first freedom, so it could be both accurate and catchy NRA, but ironically, for an outfit that teaches how to use a firearm safely, the NRA is not really all that into accuracy. So why do I have a copy of the January issue of America's First Freedom, The Gun Rights Authority? A family member I saw over the holidays said he joined so he could be a pro-gun control mole, I guess, or troll. I'm really not too sure what he wants to do with his membership in the NRA, but he opposes everything the NRA stands for. So whatever. I really don't know what this plan or logic is, but anyway, he gave me the magazine, and from what I gathered from the publication, NRA members are very... Very unhappy, very angry people, riddled with fear and in a constant state of duress, obsessed with their safety, but even more so, obsessed with being afraid of fantastic nightmares that seem to be their their dreams. They can't wait to stop that bad guy around the corner who is about to do Lord knows what, but sadly for the ever-prepared NRA member, the bad guy is just a mirage, a fiction concocted in their own head. 
Maybe someday, they say to themselves, they'll get lucky and actually shoot somebody. In Journalism 101 classes, the first thing instructors often do is have students analyze publications to determine who their tar target audience is. It's a way of introducing the basic concepts of media criticism, of media analysis. And I should know, I took Journalism 101 four or five times at different schools, and it was always the same. So let's see who's advertising in America's first freedom, the NRA rag. The first ad is for buying gold and silver, of course, because when the zombie apocalypse or whatever apocalypse the NRA is dreaming up happens, you are going to want gold and lots of it. Paper money will have gone up in the firestorm. Gold has a bit more durability. Besides, if nobody is accepting gold or sil silver in our post-apocalyptic hellscape, you can still throw it at people and silver and gold hurt. You can also melt it down and make bullets because by now you're probably... You probably use a lot of rounds and ammo is running low. There's an ad for the life-changing experience of the high school conference at Reagan Ranch, which truly would have been a life-changing event for me as a high schooler in that I am pretty certain after a few days at the Reagan Ranch, my life would end at my own hand. And thanks, NRA, for having such easy access to firearms at the Reagan Ranch. Such So there, sure, there's ads for guns that are either accompanied by a beautiful woman or a picture of some old dead general. But more than anything, there's lots of crap for old people. And apparently, all we have to do is wait them out because NRA members are very, very old and very, very close to death. There's the ad for the perfect sleep chair, which is also the perfect lift chair to get your sorry old ass up because you now need a chair to lift you up. There's advanced digital hearing aid technology and walk-in tubs. There's life insurance and low-cost cell phone service exclusive for NRA members. There's jewelry so you can show your pride in your son or daughter's service in the military, or maybe you are just boasting of your own. There's another hearing aid ad and the supposedly perfect gift, a concealed carry pouch for your hip which is the perfect, perfect gift for someone who cannot get out of a chair into their tub or actually hear what is happening around them. Yes, arm them. That's a great idea. The inside cover of the back page has an ad for the complete guide to hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which wonders if the therapy is a, quote, fountain of youth. Who really cares about the articles? The Rise of the Woman Gun Owner is alongside a story headlined What an All-Woman Militia in Syria Taught Me About the Second Amendment, a confusing article on how the U.S. Constitution can be interpreted through all-female self-defense forces fighting terrorists in the Middle East. And no, there wasn't any mention in the article about how the women represent a matriarchal direct democracy socialism, if not communism, because that definitely would not square with the uber-patriotic readers of America's First Freedom. There's also a story about how real people carry as if there's some factionalization happening within the NRA. Who knows? All I know is that from what I can gather about the NRA from their January 2020 issue of their America's First Freedom magazine is NRA members are not happy, are angry, are afraid, are dangerous, are old, need a more comfortable chair to sleep in and then need that chair to help them get up want cheaper cell phone service and life insurance, have trouble getting in and out of the tub, can't hear, and with all those problems, they need to conceal carry a gun. But most importantly, they're all old. They're all going to die real soon. Let's just hope they don't take too many of us with them. See, I told you. This is hell coming up how our expanding food safety net 
in lieu of actually addressing poverty depresses wages and increases inequality. We'll have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what the hell are you going to do with an autographed picture of Sam Weish autographed to Chuck Mertz when you win this week's question from hell? We'll also throw in that issue of America's First Freedom magazine from the NRA and a flash drive called The Guide to the 21st Century, containing 25 interviews from the past two decades, which you can get right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Life for the poor is very different today than it was prior to neoliberalism and precarity. The social contract has been torn up and you now have to work for benefits from the state. Privatizing social services has completely changed assistance into a program that increasingly employs food as a safety net rather than addressing the real causes of poverty. Here to tell us what life is like in today's world of food insecurity, anthropologist Maggie Dickinson is author of Feeding the Crisis, Care and Abandonment in America's Food Safety Net. Welcome to This Is Hell, Maggie. Thanks so much for having me. You can follow Maggie on Twitter at Mag2D2, the number two, the letter D, and then the number two. Maggie is Assistant Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at the City University of New York's Gutman Community College. You write, food assistance has become the leading edge of the 21st century response to growing poverty and economic insecurity. Since the turn of the millennium, there has been an unprecedented outpouring of food assistance across the United States, encompassing both federally funded food programs like SNAP, formerly referred to as food stamps, and emergency food providers like soup kitchens and food pantries. How has addressing poverty and economic insecurity changed in the 21st century? Were poverty and economic insecurity addressed in a different way in the past? And if so, uh, how was it done in the past and how is it done now? Sure. Um, so I think one of the important things for me in this research, and the reason I started it was because post-recession, there started to be news articles bubbling up about food stamps and how it was becoming a destigmatized welfare state program. And the numbers of people on food stamps were rising sort of exponentially um, in the wake of the Great Recession. And at the time, I was thinking to myself, that's not the welfare state story that we know in the United States. I think the story that most of us know that we hear repeated over and over is that the welfare state in the US has been cut back, dismantled, made smaller, really since the Reagan era. So I started this research sort of asking the question, what's going on? Why do we have this sort of major federal uh, welfare state program that's expanding? And in fact, you have politicians saying, we want people to access food stamps, right? We think this is a positive thing um, because it struck me as so different than our understanding of how we thought about welfare for really 40 years at this point. Um, and so I think the important kind of moments here are the pre-1996, pre-welfare reform moments and how we distributed assistance to poor people in the U.S. And then what happened starting in around the year 2000, um, which is really where food assistance becomes the central piece of how we're addressing poverty and inequality here in the United States. So prior to Bill Clinton's 1996 welfare reforms, people who were out of a job and didn't have means, didn't have resources to take care of themselves, didn't have money, um, were able to apply for 
what we often refer to as welfare, cash assistance for poor families. And this was money that was given to people until they were able to get back on their feet, until they were able to get a job. Um, the 1996 welfare reforms, what they did primarily was two things, time limit those benefits so people can't get them for more than five years in their lifetime. And then the other thing that they did, and the really major thing, was push this idea of welfare to work. The idea was that women in particular uh, who were on welfare assistance really should be working. And the mantra of welfare reform was that work was going to be a path out of poverty. This is how it was sold to everybody. If these women would just go into the workforce, they wouldn't be so poor. So those welfare reforms, what they did was basically force people, as you said in your intro, to work for any sort of public assistance benefits that they were getting, including food stamps. There were work requirements added to food stamps at that time, too. Of course, what happened is women in huge numbers moved off the welfare rolls, but they did not find any relief from the grinding poverty that they had been experiencing when they were receiving assistance. The jobs that they found were often kind of service sector jobs, um, home health aides, working in fast food, taking care of children, um, not well-paid work, not stable work. And so they were working, but they were still poor. Starting in about 2000, 2001, and this is during the George Bush administration, so under a Republican administration, there was a realization that the promise of welfare reform was not happening. These women were doing what was expected of them, but they were still living in pretty dire poverty. And so around that time, you started to see at the federal level changes to food stamp policy that made it easier for people to apply for and to receive food stamps. And you also heard a sort of change in the language so that food stamps in particular began being talked about as, and I heard this language over and over when I was doing this research, as what's called a work support. So the idea is this is money that is subsidizing low wages, that's helping low wage workers make ends meet. And so starting in 2001, the food stamp rolls really started to rise at that point, prior to the recession, under a Republican administration, um, they rose from about 18 million people in 2001 to 27 million in 2008, and then continued to rise as the Great Recession took hold, as more people lost their jobs um, during the Obama administration. They hit their peak in around 2012 at 47 million Americans. And even though we've had an official economic recovery from the Great Recession, those numbers haven't fallen all that far. They're still pretty close to that historic high, serving just under 40 million in the last few years. So what we've seen is that welfare benefits that used to support people when they were out of work, offering some basic, very minimal you know, poverty level existence for people when they were out of work has now been transformed into what I call work subsidies, wage subsidies, so that the two biggest means-tested welfare programs, means-tested means you have to have a certain income in order to qualify for them, um, so food stamps and the earned income tax credit, both of those are tied to work. The in earned income tax credit is tied entirely to work, so you have to be working in order to get it, and it's 
aimed at low-income folks to subsidize those low wages that they're earning. But food stamps is increasingly taking that same form, so that food stamps has become this program that politicians will say, yes, yes, we want people to get it. It's a work support. Working people deserve it. And what's happened is that you have a situation where Many millions of low-income families are relying on food stamps, even though they have people in their households working. And then you have a group of people who are outside of the labor force who are basically kept from any kind of benefits at all. Um, to use sort of the old Marxist term, what we're creating is a real reserve army of labor who is excluded from benefits, excluded from work, and who are so desperate and in such deep poverty that they'll take really any job under any conditions. So what happens to the social contract when it is no longer that society needs to cooperate in order to get the benefits from the state, and it turns into if you want those benefits from the state, you have to work for them? How does that change the relationship between citizen and state, and is that, is, uh, that kind of social contract sustainable? Um. I would argue no, and I think the way it really changes citizenship, and I'm so glad you asked that, is that it redefines citizenship in some ways. So, you know, starting in the Great Depression with the New Deal, in through the war on poverty in the 1970s, and then up into the 1970s when we had a huge expansion of food stamps at that period as well, there was this idea that being a citizen in the United States meant that you had a right to certain things, certain economic rights. There was a floor that you couldn't fall below. Um, and when we look at that expansion of food stamps that began in the late 1960s and into the early 1970s, what was fueling that expansion was a very different idea of citizenship than what we're seeing today. So. In 1968, uh, Robert Kennedy went on his famous poverty tour. He toured parts of Appalachia, the Deep South. And what he saw and what he documented at that time was real uh, severe hunger and mal malnutrition, the kind of hunger that looks like you know, swollen bellies, wounds that won't heal, particularly among children. There was a documentary at that time called Hunger in America that was aired on national television that brought some of these findings to people living across the United States. And this is 1968. This was the era of, you know, the United States was called the affluent society. There was a sense that wealth was really, you know, eradicated in the United States, that people were living very well. And to see that kind of poverty was really shocking and jarring to a lot of people in the U.S. at that time. It was also a time where there were a lot of social movements that were pushing for an expansion of citizenship rights, particularly among African Americans. So this is coming after the civil rights movement. You had smaller movements that grew out of that, like the National Welfare Rights Organization, which, which was a group of primarily black women who were pushing for a universal basic income, arguing that that kind of economic right was part of the rights of citizenship. It actually came very, very close to being enacted during the Nixon administration in the early 70s. Um, so in this moment where people become aware that there are people who are starving in the U.S., that was shocking to people's conscience. And I think the idea that you could have American citizens who were hungry seemed intolerable. In fact, Richard Nixon himself called it intolerable. Um, so in that moment, you see very swiftly, very quickly, a move to expand the food stamp program, to make it a federal food program, um, 
to make sure that it was enacted in every state and every county in the U.S. really gave it its modern form. And that's another point where the roles rose exponentially, primarily because you had people who had a general sense that citizenship meant if you lived in the United States and you were a citizen here, you should have access to a basic modicum of security, including economic security. This all changes in the 1980s. When Reagan comes into office, you have business sort of organizing together to push back against some of the social gains of the previous century very successfully, what you referred to before as neoliberalism, that era. And part of that was pushing back against the gains in the social safety net. So the shape that this takes and, and why the social safety net is so different now is primarily because it's no longer the idea that if you're a citizen, if you're living in the United States, there's a floor that you shouldn't be able to fall below, right? That you have some sort of economic rights to a basic modicum of just being able to live, a right to food, um, not a right to housing. That's not something we ever necessarily had, but food, which is so fundamental to being able to live. What you have is a shift towards those being things, those benefits being things that have to be earned through work. And so what happens is that employers have much more power in defining who's a citizenship, who's a citizen and who's not. People who don't have employment actually fall out of the compact of citizenship of having food on the table, of having some modicum of being able to live a life. And what happens is that feeds into the low-wage economy as a whole, right? So when you are able to exclude a group of people, a group of citizens from that social compact, what that does is that creates differences even among the very lowest tiers of the economic ladder so that you have people who are a little bit better off, right, able to have a minimum wage job, get food stamps, get the earned income tax credit, and live, uh, even if it's not even if it's still in poverty. And then you have a group of people who are excluded entirely, who serve as basically a warning to everybody else. If you're not working, this is what can happen to you. What we've seen since the passage of welfare reform in the 90s is a substantial increase in the number of people in the United States living on less than $2 a day. And what happens is there is an overall sense, even though that's a smaller number of people, that that's a possibility, that kind of dire, desperate poverty is something that can happen to you, and that disciplines the rest of the labor force. Um, I met many people when I was doing this research who were say, would say over and over, I just need a job. I just don't want to end up on the street. And we know that's a population that exists. That's a reality in the United States today. And it sparks fear in people just a little bit higher up the ladder. You write the Trump administration's push to tighten the links between SNAP assistance and work is part of a broader project to link all forms of public assistance, including Medicaid, to participation in the labor force, which is incredibly frightening. It immediately makes me think of some sort of dystopian future where we have to work in order to get our Social Security retirement benefits. And you add that by tying food stamps to work, these benefits have become a key incentive and a key punishment, encouraging working people to accept the increasingly poor terms employers are offering them. So I wanted to make sure that people understood this might have a more universal impact than they might imagine. Uh, does tying food stamps to work undermine the bargaining position, leading to poor terms for all workers, uh, forcing them to accept uh, poor terms because of the impact that that's having on the labor force and wages? 
Yeah, I think there's a few things there. I mean, the first is that what I'm describing in relationship to the food stamp program is absolutely what happened with cash assistance in the 90s and is also being rolled out for all kinds of programs currently. So as you pointed out, the Trump administration just added work requirements, allowed a few states to add work requirements to health insurance, to Medicaid. Um, so now what we're seeing in those states is that people are being pushed off of the health insurance rules in those states. Um, so certainly this is a pattern that is being expanded across what's left of the social safety net in the U.S. Um, but I think this bigger question about the implications for how this ends up disciplining the working class as a whole is really, really important um, because subsidizing low wages with things like food stamps does a couple of things. One is when it's tied to work, like I said before, it creates that kind of excluded class who are really um, serving as a warning to other folks. But the other thing that it does is that it allows low-wage employers to continue to pay below subsistence wages, below what people need to afford basic things like food and rent. So places like Walmart, which, as we know, is a huge low-wage employer, has been instrumental in driving down wages in the United States, notoriously anti-union, they pay their workers so little that literally hundreds of thousands of their workers depend on food stamps in order to make ends meet, there would be much more pressure on those companies from workers if they weren't getting those subsidies from the state. The state is basically stepping in and subsidizing these large, low-wage employers so that they can pay people so little. The other thing that happens with Walmart that's sort of fascinating is then they also use the emergency food network to you know, the term greenwashing, I don't know what the term would be, it's sort of charity washing, the work that they do by donating lots and lots of their expired food to the emergency food network. So things like soup kitchens and food pantries. And then they advertise this as, you know, they're good corporate citizens. The irony of all this is that it's actually their policies around driving down wages that make people so reliant on food assistance, both food stamps and things like soup kitchens and food pantries. So I think that relationship between what it means to be a citizen, how that's related to employment, and then how the state embodies and subsidizes that relationship between citizenship and employment is creating this situation where workers are really caught in a bind, right? That their economic rights have been undermined left, right, and center so that the situation, as we know, um, you know, wages have stagnated, work is very insecure, there's this overall sense of precarity. And part of what I'm arguing is that it's actually the welfare state at this point that's feeding into that larger process. But there are those, especially people who are supporters of the Trump administration, who would say that the economy is doing fantastic right now. You point mm -hmm. out that during the George W. Bush administration, national food stamp rolls rose from just above 18 million in 2001 to 27 million in 2008. This growth gained even more momentum as a deep recession took hold. By the end of 2012, the rolls reached a record 47 million Americans, or around 15 percent of the U.S. population, despite an official economic recovery 
recovery snap rolls remain near this historic high. How can we? How can that be? If the stock market is at record highs, if at all the metrics that we see on the news, unemployment is at record lows. How is it possible to have all these record high metrics on the economy when we also have record numbers of people getting food assistance? That's a great question. Um, part of it is the way that the, the metrics that we pay attention to. So it's absolutely true that the official unemployment rate is at a historic low, lower than it's been in 50 years. Um, certainly there are jobs to be had. Uh, that leaves out certain categories of people geographically. Um, it's very different in some places than in others. I live in New York City. Um, there are lots of jobs available in New York City. There are places in the U.S. where geographically jobs aren't available in the same way. But the reality is the kinds of jobs that are available, and this is really the more important metric, I think, the kinds of jobs that are available are still paying people so little and tend to be so insecure. So part of what we're seeing is not just that there's unemployment, that people are able to get jobs, but what we're also seeing is that the kinds of jobs that people are able to get are not life-sustaining jobs. They're not the kind of jobs where people can live a meager but sufficient life. They can't afford rent. They can't afford rent and food. That's why even though we've had an economic recovery, you still have huge numbers of people on food stamps because those wage subsidies are still necessary given the kinds of jobs that people have access to. So, you know, we hear a lot of talk about things like the gig economy. Um, we know that there's tons of turnover in the jobs that people have. They're often short term. And we also know that the pay that people are receiving just isn't enough to lift them out of poverty or possibly to lift them out of poverty, even with wage subsidies like food stamps and the earned income tax credit. So those measures, I mean, the stock market is irrelevant for most people living in the United States. Most people don't own stocks. But the unemployment numbers, which actually are relevant to most working people, really only tell part of the story. It's true those numbers are low, and actually what we would expect to see, because food stamps is a cyclical program, uh, the expectation is that the rolls will rise when unemployment rises and then will fall when unemployment falls. And historically, that's what we've seen, but that's not what we're seeing right now. Those rolls have stayed extremely high relative to the unemployment rate, and that's because it's, the program is operating differently now. It's operating as a wage subsidy um, you know, the other thing that we would expect to see with the unemployment numbers as low as they are right now is in a tight labor market, the expectation is that that's when wages rise. So what economists have been telling us for decades and decades is that, you know, when that unemployment number gets too low, what we'll start to see is inflation because demands for higher wages will, will push inflation. And we're not seeing that at all. Wages have barely budged even though we have the lowest unemployment rate that we've seen in generations. So even with that tight, tight labor market, wages haven't really risen much at all. The only real rises that we're starting to see are largely because of the um, fight for 15 movement, the, the raises in the minimum wage. But even, even with those, um, we're not seeing the kind of wage increases that we would expect given the tight labor market. So obviously something else is happening. And I think part of this is the larger sort of power struggle 
over time where employers have gained an enormous amount of power in the labor market, and they're able to still keep those wages low despite this very, very high, uh, very, very low unemployment rate. So how sustainable do you think those metrics are in convincing voters that the economy is doing well? Because I've never understood, I've been doing this show (laughs) since 1996, I've never understood why those metrics are always used in the media when they have such a disconnect from what people are experiencing economically and financially on the front lines of their life. Yeah, well, it it is, um, you know, part of it is, cultural. I think there's this cultural mantra that we've been sold and maybe some people have bought into, but the way that our economy is talked about is largely through things like GDP, uh, things like, you know, how's NASDAQ doing, how's Wall Street doing. Um, I think what we're beginning to see, and I think this is actually longer term, I don't think this is necessarily recent, but I think what we started to see starting in 2011 with things like Occupy Wall Street was a growing public understanding that those metrics were not really the right metrics. People were really beginning to speak out and say, even though Um, They say that we're having an economic recovery. I haven't seen it. I haven't experienced it, right? In my life, things are still incredibly difficult. And I, I think that part of what we're seeing on the national political stage right now in this very unstable moment where it seems like lots of things are up for grabs is partly the result of that, that people everyday people are starting to understand that they are not the only ones who are experiencing these hardships, that the kinds of challenges that they're having, affording rents, affording food, are not theirs alone and not necessarily their fault. These are larger structures that they're at the whims of. And I think part of that is fueling so much of what we're seeing today in terms of social movement organizing, but also in terms of just a political landscape where you have Really, you couldn't have more sort of polar opposite candidates in the presidential race right now. On the one hand, you have Trump, who's adding work requirements to Medicaid. On the other hand, you have Democrats who are arguing that we should have Medicaid for all. Um, So I think we're in a really polarized moment, and I think part of that is coming from people realizing and understanding that they're not alone. You know, that there was um, one of the people who I spent a lot of time with when I was doing this research uh, was this guy named Nigel, and he at one point was talking to me, he'd lost a job. Uh, he spent like three years trying to kind of dig out of a financial hole um, and had a really, really difficult time doing that. And at one point he said to me, you know, when Obama got elected, I thought there was going to be a big Peace Corps revival of American society. And then he kind of goes on, he's kind of thinking through his last couple of years. And then at the end, he says, you know, I think there's something missing. I think there's me. I think it needs more of me in the soup. And he kind of goes from, you know, starting with this expectation that what we need is a big Peace Corps revival of the United States. And then he ends up in this place where he's blaming himself. He's like, I should have tried harder. I should have done more. And I think in miniature, in his own life, that's what so many people are grappling with. Is it me? Do I need to do more? Is it my fault? I should have gone to school or I should have done this. Or is it these larger systems that are affecting all of us. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing play out on the national stage right now. We are speaking with anthropologist Maggie Dickinson, author of Feeding the Crisis, Care and Abandonment in America's Food Safety Net. You can follow her on Twitter at Mag 
2D2. That's the number two, the letter D, and then the number two. Your book is really fascinating, and it touches on a whole bunch of different aspects when it comes to the food safety net and social services. You write, previous expansions of welfare benefits have made the state a target of collective political action for poor people demanding access to more resources. In the 1960s, a powerful national welfare rights movement emerged out of the broader civil rights movements. Expansions of the welfare state through contracting out to nonprofit organizations make these kind of collective political actions less likely since the public face of emergency food providers is not a street-level government bureaucrat whose job depends, at least to some degree, on serving clients, but a volunteer. In this way, the growth of nonprofit social service providers is a key aspect of contemporary poverty governance, replacing entitlements provided by the state with charity. Did outsourcing public services undermine the black liberation and civil rights movements? And was that the intent of outsourcing social services to charities to shift the blame from the obligation of the state to the charitable giving of private individuals and organizations, people and groups that you would never rise up against for their acts of what would be perceived as kindness? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good question. I think that the contracting out of social services to the nonprofit sector and to charity, there's a longer history here um, where you can trace historically a, a sort of ebb and flow. Um, there have often been people, often conservatives on the right, pushing for this idea that charity is actually where help should come from. It should come from the local community. Uh, it should not come from the state. And so what we were seeing with that move towards emergency food as the face of hunger, as who should be addressing hunger, was exactly that. I mean, you had people like Paul Ryan saying, essentially, Help should come from the hearts. It shouldn't come from a mandate. It shouldn't come from the state. So the difference between those two is that when you have public assistance programs that are entitlement programs, right, that are funded by the state, that are um, governed by laws, so that if, for example, you apply for something that you meet the qualifications for and you get denied, there's a legal process. You can go complain. You can make a lawsuit, right, that this is happening within the public sphere, within the legislative sphere, versus help coming from charity where no one has a right to demand anything from charity. I mean, this is something that I saw over and over. I spent about three years running a food stamp outreach program and volunteering in a soup kitchen and a food pantry in Brooklyn. And oftentimes what people would say when someone would complain, if we ran out of something, um, people in the line would say, start complaining. And then someone else, typically another person who was coming to the pantry would look at them and say like, Hey, Hey, don't complain. These people, these volunteers, they don't need to be doing this, right? Don't give them a hard time. Um, this is very, very different than when people are denied benefits from the state and they protest the state. They initiate lawsuits. What we saw with the National Welfare Rights Organization in the 1960s, that they were basically sitting in, in welfare offices and demanding what was theirs, what was what they were entitled to that welfare officers had not been giving them, right? Um, things like clothing allowances for winter coats and that kind of stuff. So it's a very different way of administering help to people who need it and resources, the resources that people need to live. Um, I think 
Certainly this move could be seen as a push against the kind of militant action that civil rights leaders and women like the National Welfare Rights Organization, you know, what they were doing in terms of demanding their legal rights. I think the push towards charity can definitely be seen as a reaction to that kind of militant action, that very successful organizing that was happening in the 60s and early 70s. Um, but I also think it does a few other things. So one of the things that moving towards charity does, and this is all I should say, um, the move towards emergency food is often understood as exclusively a move towards charity. People who care about hunger starting feeding programs in their communities out of concern or out of sympathy, um, that's not totally accurate. So I don't want to give the impression that that's what's happening, because I think that's most people's understanding. But what was happening in the early 1980s is that you had new streams of funding coming from the federal government. In particular, um, there's a program called the Emergency Food Assistance Program. It used to be called the Temporary Emergency Food Assistance Program, or TFAP. And what TFAP did was it provided funding for small charitable organizations, soup kitchens and food pantries, to distribute commodity foods that were coming from the USDA. So in the early 1980s, this was a lot of um, cheese, a lot of dairy that was being bought up by the USDA, and then these smaller organizations were distributing it out to people in need. Um, but then it also was providing administrative funding to food banks in communities all across the United States so that if a community didn't have a food bank prior to this funding being in existence, there was suddenly an incentive starting in the early 1980s to start one. So I, I just want to be clear that although I think the move towards charity is in many ways a reaction towards trying to undermine people's fights around their economic citizenship rights, um, I also think it's really important to note that it, it, it didn't happen outside of state funding. It's state funding in the forms of things like TFAP that are, that are underlying the enormous explosion that we've seen in emergency food providers and food banks and soup kitchens since the 1980s. Um, so that actually what we're seeing is a shift in funding that makes it seem like these are voluntary organizations when in fact the backbone of them is the state funding. And in many ways, what that's doing is just, as you said, kind of undermining people's ability to make demands um, in terms of the kind of food that they're getting, whether they're getting food, whether they're being cut off from assistance or not. That happens in federal welfare programs and does not happen in the charitable sector. And I'm trying to figure out the effectiveness, the efficiency of uh, this process of the way we have moved the social safety net to essentially just encompass food. I'm trying to figure out if uh, if this is cost effective, if this is better than the old process, how, you know, how this is better or worse than in the past. And you write, welfare reforms passed in the mid-1990s garnered a tremendous amount of scholarly and political attention. What has been largely overlooked in much of this analysis is the degree to which social spending targeted to the poor has, in fact, grown, as you were pointing out earlier. While unemployed single-parent households have less access to public benefits, employed two-parent 
households have much more access to assistance today. In the early 2000s, policymakers at the federal, state, and local levels began to ease access to food stamp benefits. So this works great for parents who are two-parent households uh, who work, but if you're a single parent and do not work, then there is no social safety net for you except for food. Have we seen or is there any kind of link to any increase in homelessness since the food safety net expanded? Well, I think when we think about food being the leading edge of our response to poverty and hunger, I mean, it seems obvious that it's insufficient. People need to eat, for sure. And I never want to be taking the position that things like food stamps or even emergency food providers aren't doing important work, making sure that people can eat. But if you think about it for 10 seconds, if you have food, that's fine. But that doesn't come close to covering people's basic needs. We need housing. We need cash for the other things that we need in our life, transportation, paying the light bill, all of this stuff. So I think what's happened in some ways is that we've had this enormous expansion of food assistance because it fits the model of being a wage subsidy. And the reason why it's grown the way it has is because it's something that can easily subsidize low wages that people are earning. Um, it is not nearly sufficient to take care of all of people's basic needs. So we've certainly seen an increase in um, homelessness in New York City, where I've been doing this work over the past 20 years. It's an epidemic. And it's even with de Blasio, you know, this was true under the Bloomberg administration, but even under de Blasio, who came in talking about a tale of two cities, homelessness has continued to increase. We're seeing this in California. And this is because even if people have access to food, that's not enough for their life. And housing, of course, is the other huge issue that people were facing. Oftentimes, the people who I met and I was spending time with, um, food was kind of the least of their troubles. That was often the thing they could find help with. Housing was the thing that seemed almost an impossibility. Once people lost housing, it was often a sort of downward spiral. Um, we're getting back on their feet, getting back into a place where they had stable housing often took years and years. So I definitely think um, when we think about food assistance and these wage subsidies as being kind of the leading edge, we really have to think about, you know, what that's excluding and the kinds of questions that that um, distracts us from, right? So when I'm thinking about what people really need and what people were telling me they really needed, one thing certainly was housing, affordable housing, stable housing. But then the other thing that almost everybody I met um, during this research was saying that they needed was a job that paid them enough to be able to afford those basic necessities, to be able to afford food and to be able to afford housing. And when we think about really, you know, if we wanted to address homelessness in a robust way, or if we really, really wanted to address economic insecurity, that's going to have to happen through changes to the labor market. Um, I think it's really interesting right now that we're having a public national conversation about a federal jobs guarantee. This is a part of the Green New Deal um, resolution that was introduced in Congress last year. It's also something that's come up in the Democratic presidential debates. And this was something that I uh, came to realize would, you know, I was focused on food assistance, but what the people I met who were really struggling with these conditions needed and wanted was 
a real job, a, a job that where they could earn enough money to, to live a basic but decent life. Um, the way it works right now in relationship to welfare is if you lose a job, if you have no means, if you have no access to anything, and you go to the welfare office, what they do is they assign you to a workfare job. In New York City, this would be like cleaning up the subways, cleaning up the parks, and people are paid um, below minimum wage in cash. Typically, it's around 2 to $4 in cash per hour for these workfare jobs, and the rest of it is coming from food stamps. What I started thinking about is, like, what if we thought about unemployment differently so that when people came to the welfare office and they were in need of assistance, instead of offering them a below minimum wage job, doing something that they don't want to do, what if we offered them jobs that actually raise labor standards instead of lowering them, right? This is sort of the crux of the jobs guarantee argument so that people who want work, anybody who wants work can find work doing meaningful, uh, meaningful things to better their communities at a living wage with benefits, with reasonable time off. That would be a game changer in terms of how we address poverty and insecurity. And as I said, I don't want to take the position that there's something nefarious or wrong about food stamps as they currently are. Right now, what they're doing is keeping people from starving, and that's important. But thinking longer term, we have to think much more big picture than the food safety net. And you write that when you were talking to these clients, what emerged as I accompanied them and assisted them in their efforts to feed themselves and their families was a safety net designed to manage poverty and hunger, not to end it. Back in December, we spoke with sociologist Brendan McQuaid, author of Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion and Mass Supervision. In his book, Brendan discusses managing poverty, but in a different way, and that's through these intelligence fusion centers that were in response to the attacks of 9-11 as ways to stop future terror attacks, and now those surveillance tools are being turned on marginalized communities of color to, again, manage poverty. What does that say to you about neoliberalism and its precarity today? Are are they increasing management of the poor because they fear the poor are going to soon become unmanageable? I think that uh, certainly when we think about historicizing neoliberalism, that idea of managing poverty, managing poor people was a direct reaction to the social movements emerging in the 1950s and 60s, where you really did have um, disorder. You really did have people demanding much, much more from the state and much more responsiveness in terms of access to housing, access to education, access to basic economic rights. Um, you know, so I think that moment of the business class organizing themselves in the 1970s is largely in response to that unmanageable unrest. And that's, you know, often the history of social change in the U.S. The same thing happens in the Great Depression. You know, you end up getting the New Deal, which in many ways made people's lives better, but it was a response to the kinds of unrest that were unraveling in the streets. Huge labor movements, right? Stopping industry, um, committees of unemployed people, tent cities. So it's that kind of agitation where you get a response from the state. Um, and then once that period of social movement activity quiets down, what you get is the reaction, right? The, the 
sort of pushback against those gains. So what we're seeing since the late 1970s, 1980s, is the pushback against those gains in the 60s and 70s, um, particularly among African-Americans, particularly a relationship to the civil rights movement. And so that becomes very much about managing the kinds of poverty and inequality that can give rise to social uprisings. When people are hungry, when people don't have work, when people are left without um, the basic things that they need in their lives when they don't have housing, they're not necessarily going to be happy about that. And if people organize together to push for what they need, that does cause a certain amount of unrest. That does cause a certain amount of instability for a ruling class that's maybe not interested in giving those things. And so what we end up seeing is all of these ways that organized interest in society, uh, you know, the business class starts using the state to try to manage poor people to manage that kind of unrest. Um, giving enough in ways that don't actually bolster labor rights, that don't make workers bolder, but keep them stuck in a place where they're very dependent on work. There's no way to live outside of work. There's no sort of exit strategy um, so that the control that they're experiencing is largely the necessity of taking jobs that don't sustain them, but that are maybe enough. And then, as you pointed out before, there's this whole other sort of, you know, I think a lot about the welfare state, but the other side of that is the carceral state, which is exactly, as you said, also managing poverty in very similar ways. Um, you know, and lots of people who write about prisons have, have made that same argument. And so the carceral state and the welfare state are oftentimes opposed to each other. You know, people argue that the carceral state replaced the welfare state I think what I'm saying in some ways is the welfare state has also been transformed so that it is managing poverty in relationship to this low-wage labor market in a very similar way um, to the carceral state. One last question for you, Maggie. We've been speaking with anthropologist Maggie Dickinson, author of Feeding the Crisis, Care and Abandonment in America's Food Safety Net. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You point out how, how the food pantries, food pantries like the one that you worked in, are part of this system of the food safety net that could unfortunately depress wages and make them stagnate. Are pantry workers like yourself or pantry workers who were once clients and are now volunteers unwittingly helping precarity and insecurity to exist by feeding poor people? Aside from mass starvation, what would happen to our system of precarity if suddenly all charities refuse to feed those suffering from food insecurities? Because I can't decide, Maggie. I guess this is the real mm -hmm. question from hell. Should I volunteer at a food pantry or not? Would I be more complicit in the system of doing the improper and inappropriate things for the poor? <laughs> that is a terrible question. <laughs> I think it's a good one, though. And I'll say this. So uh, Janet Poppendick is a researcher who wrote a book called Sweet Charity in the late 90s. And she basically made that argument that you're sketching out there, that Charities were undermining things like, um, you know, SNAP or food stamps, which is a federal entitlement, the, you know, the federal welfare state, um, and also part of the sort of system of, you know, locking people into low wages or locking people into poverty. Um, 
I am very sympathetic to her argument. And this is where you'll see I'm a um, very optimistic person. But what I see at this point, and I would say, no, you should still go volunteer, right? Um, and I actually see a lot of political potential in places like soup kitchens and food pantries that are feeding poor people, because the people who are doing that work really actually care very much about hunger. Um, they're doing what sometimes people call direct, like mutual aid, but they're doing it in a way that is not politicized at all. So... My thought is that if you wanted to go volunteer at a food pantry, you should do it, but we should do this in a way that mirrors something like the Black Panther Party's breakfast programs, where they were doing mutual aid, they were feeding people, but they were also using it as an opportunity to politicize people, to say, listen, this is not what we should be doing. We should have a right to food. This is just what we're doing in the meantime, until the revolution comes, until we have what we need. Um, so I think, I would argue, charities like soup kitchens and food pantries are doing work that needs to be done. They don't want to see people starve. And that human impulse is really great and really important. But if it, if it remains unpoliticized, if we're not saying to people, people deserve more, um, then it's going to continue to be part of that overall picture that we were painting, the this is hell picture. Um, but I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. And I think there's a lot of potential there. Maggie, thank you so much for being on our show this week. This is a fascinating conversation and I really enjoyed your book. Again, Maggie Dickinson is author of Feeding the Crisis, Care and Abandonment in America's Food Safety Net. You can follow her on Twitter at Mag, the number two, the letter D, and then the number two, Mag 2D2. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. All right, take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what the hell are you going to do with an autographed picture of recently deceased Cincinnati Bengals coach Sam Weish made out to Chuck? And that is what the prize is for the best answer to this week's question from hell. And I'm also going to throw in the NRA's magazine, America's First Freedom, and a flash drive of the uh, This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century. So Alex, do you have any answers from our listeners yet? Oh yeah. Uh, Mark H. says, I will post it in front of Chuck's childhood home and take pictures. <laughs> Actually, that guy will. Mike M. says, Hey, this is as close as to eating. This is as close to eating the rich as the edge lords may ever get. Give it to me, and I will feed it to a communist. <laughs> Fabio L says, "I have no idea who this is. I listen to podcasts so that I don't have to deal with sports." <laughs> Joshua L says, "Easy answer, the icky shuffle." Oh, oh, that's horrible and too relevant. Then finally, Adam A says, "I'm going to convince my long-suffering Bengals friend Evan to change his name." to Chuck. <laughs> Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email either myself or Alex, chuck at thisishell.com or Alex at thisishell.com. We'll get to listener feedback tomorrow. Alex, who's on Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show. Alex Niven will be on to talk about his book, New Model Island, How to Build a radical culture beyond the idea of England. I think New Model Island is right off the Nova Scotia coast, and I'll be visiting there soon. Tune into tomorrow's streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago Time show. 
at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out all of the answers to this week's question from hell. And then on Thursday, we'll be telling you who won. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Maggie Dickinson, author of Feeding the Crisis. You can follow her on Twitter at Mag2D2. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.